Salam all, welcome to another episode of In Conversation, brought to you by Network Reorient, part of the Critical Muslim Studies Project. For this episode, we're at the States of Islamophobia Conference in Istanbul, the inaugural conference for the International Islamophobia Studies Research Association, which was hosted by the Ibn Haldun University on their absolutely gorgeous campus. It's absolutely fantastic. For those who have the chance to visit it, uh, if you're in Istanbul, I would highly recommend just a walk around that campus. It's fantastic. Um, so the association uh, will support the dissemination of academic research and publicly engaged scholarship on Islamophobia, as well as being a hub for academic leadership in the field of Islamophobia studies. The inaugural conference of the association was amazing, alhamdulillah. I made some new connections, uh, renewed some old ones, and I had Uyghur food for the first time. It was definitely a bit uh, spicier than what I expected. Um, this episode is the last plenary session of the conference. Um, so this session was chaired by Adnan Hussein of Queen's University, with Hatem Bazian of UC Berkeley, Jasmine Zeen of Wilfrid Laurier University, and Salman Said of the University of Leeds being your main speakers. Let's listen in. Thanks everyone uh, for coming back. Welcome to the actual final panel of this uh, three-day conference, which of course has been a really wonderful series of presentations, questions and answers, discussions, both right after the sessions and among all the participants. We're all so thankful, alhamdulillah, to have this chance to be together. and. Um, uh, inshallah, this is going to be a very auspicious inauguration of ISRA uh, with this conference. Uh, but to bring together some of these threads of the many different aspects that have been discussed over the course of these three days, we have this concluding special roundtable with our distinguished conference organizers who need no introduction. Um, to speak, and I will invite them in a moment, uh, to speak uh, for five minutes as an opening um, to talk about their work or their impressions, and then uh, I will pose uh, three topics in the form of a question for a subsequent discussion among the panelists, um, after which we'll open up uh, for comments, questions, and discussion from the audience. So inshallah, Although it's been a long day, uh, we still have, hopefully, some energy for good discussion here uh, at the end. And those three questions or topics will be challenges in the field of Islamic studies, broadly. Um, Islamophobia studies. Islamophobia studies. I don't want to put my mufti hat. Mufti hat, okay, yeah, sorry, Islamophobia studies. Um, there are many challenges in both fields, I can assure you. Um, and uh, the stakes involved in scholar activist work on Islamophobia, and then possible horizons um, for the field of Islamophobia studies and the way in which ISRA, this uh, professional body, uh, may play a role in facilitating that work. So I'll pose those more specifically as we go on, uh, but for the moment I'd first like to uh, invite uh, Hatem Bazian uh, to address us and we'll follow in the order that they're seated. So, I wanted first actually to go through our uh, website. It's uh, finished and ready to go. 
so first, just to introduce you to the board members, only three board members are here with us today. Uh, but the board members, you have myself, Salman, uh, Jasmine, uh, Munir, Jiwa, uh, Sal Takashi, who actually was supposed to come, but he got sick. Uh, he's in Japan, he's the treasurer of the association. Abdul Karim, Vakil uh, from the UK, uh, Amina Isat, uh, Rabah Abdel Hadi as well, she was uh, supposed to come, Nadia Fadl, uh, Farid Hafiz, who actually is the co-editor with Ennis uh, of the European Report, uh, so that's part of the project. Sadiq Sheikh, who is also at the uh, Othering and Belonging Institute. Uh, Matthias Gardel, who's from Sweden, who runs a whole center with a whole uh, full staff working on issues of race, racism, Islamophobia, and uh, Marwan Mohammed from France. So we have a good uh, board, but definitely there are areas that we still need to bring in board members. You can see that uh, Africa as a continent, as a region, is not there yet. Also parts of Asia is not there. So we're aware of this, but these are some of the early individuals that came together to build uh, this uh, association. Just to give you a sense of the background, uh, we all are familiar with each other, not just because we just came to Istanbul, which we love always to come and we just enjoyed the dessert, even though there, yesterday we split into two different locations. Uh, we've been with each other working on the field of Islamophobia for quite some time. Uh, we held already about 12 different conferences on Islamophobia at Berkeley. So 11th annual conferences. Almost every topic that you think of, we had either a panel or publication. So the Islamophobia Studies Journal, we have 111 journal articles that were published on Islamophobia. Reorient, I don't know the exact number, but also a large number of articles are there looking at issues of Islam, Muslims, Islamophobia, race, racism, decoloniality, so there is that part. In France, eight annual conferences that were held in France, because again, France is a unique laboratory where all of the ideas of Islamophobia is to be introduced and then is to be reflected. So the work on the theorization of the Islamophobia studies field has been an ongoing project from almost every field that you think of. And as such, we need to begin to actually refer back and engage with the literature that is out there and see where the gaps that exist in the field in order to expand on. This gets us into becoming a member, right? Uh, there is a membership structure for the association, so full membership from the Global North. We also realize that the Global South, there is different financial economic dynamics, so there is a distinct level for that, associate membership. But we also, we want to encourage institutional membership. Uh, if your university have a research center, if your institution have a department that would like to become a member, that's one way where also the research centers that are engaging in Islamophobia can actually coordinate the research agenda as well as the research of their students. Uh, so we can actually create a cooperative community. Again, uh, this effort is not one individual. Again, it's not going to be a Salah al-Din to try to defeat Islamophobia and conceptualization. It's going to take all of us collectively to work on a systematic way in order for us to counter and begin to uh, challenge Islamophobia structure. So 
uh, institutional membership and student membership. And then there are two anchor journals. So this is very important. Uh, two anchor journals, uh, Reorient and Islamophobia Studies Journal, uh, which gets me to the papers that were presented in this conference. Uh, we invite all of you to submit your papers to review, either to uh, Reorient or the Islamophobia Studies Journal, and we will go through the peer review in order for us to get through publication. Uh, we have about 34 uh, papers in here. If everyone does their work, you're talking about four volumes coming out of the conference, maybe more. So this is where intellectual production is very, very critical, right? Uh, so if you read the Said, if you read any of the, of the scholars, you need to produce, you need to narrate both the critique, but also you narrate your story. If you don't narrate your own story, right, then someone else will narrate your story and then you only have to complain about it. So it's very critical, right? Uh, as you finish, we finish with this conference to uh, come back and submit your paper for review, either for Islamophobia Studies Journal or Reorient, and we could cluster them based on topic. Right? So uh, in general, I have a number of interests that uh, I want to get something. We have not published any type of volume on Islamophobia in Africa. So I know our brother from South Africa and. The paper on Nigeria, these are two papers, and I think if we're able to get three or four papers, we begin to actually include that element uh, relative to Islamophobia. I think the papers on the alt-right uh, is very important for us to begin to think about having a volume that looks at this. Uh, France, we have published many uh, pieces on France, but definitely there's still more to be had because they continue again to uh, create the new horizons. Uh, relative to Islamophobia. So this is again, I invite all of you, as I be, when we started the conference, to be co-partners in the work on Islamophobia. Uh, my last note is that I look at Islamophobia in six distinctive zones uh, in terms of approaching it. So one is the French, Dutch, Belgium, uh, the French-speaking section of Canada. That's where uh, really they want to regulate Islam. Right. So it's regulating Islam. Right, you get the French Islam or uh, uh, the Belgian Islam. It's Islam itself that is subject to regulation. US, UK, uh, Australia, English-speaking parts of Canada and others are the secretization zone. Meaning that Muslims are approached from secretization. You're not going to find debate about the hijab. Right? Yeah, even then celebrate. You stand next to the president with the hijab and the president would say, you see how nice we are? Right? I'm going to buy some hijabs for Muslims. But at the same time, they have the CIA watching you from the back, right? And they have a whole file on you. So that's a secretization zone, and it has its own mechanism in that way. Muslim majority states, that's a distinct zone, where it's Islam versus Islam as the mechanism. What the state says Islam is, is Islam. And what anything other than what the state Islam is a form of terrorism. All right, so that's again, is the Muslim majority states uh, zone. India, China, Burma, Palestine are the genocide zone where Muslims who are there are subject to genocide so we need to approach the research from a different lens rather than some other uh, areas. Uh, social media zone, right, is transnational, instantaneous, uh, using all types of uh, uh, parts and so on in order to actually uh, direct the uh, 
uh, demonization of Muslims is also monetized. So Facebook is, you know, ground zero for production of Islamophobia. It also makes a lot of money uh, out of it. So there is actually a vested interest. It's also monetized for election campaign, uh, Robert Mercer and others. So that's a separate zone. And then the last is the film and the performing arts zone. And this is actually very unique because we are getting increasingly Muslims that are in the performing arts arena, they're based in the film. You can't have a film without having some Muslim in there. And often, it's actually is to reaffirm the, neo the liberal and neoliberal representation of Islam. It's always, again, that the Muslim who is good is actually embracing liberal types of discourse and they're the good guy. And in the background, there's a bad Muslim. Uh, right? So increasingly the performing arts, uh, film, uh, uh, TV, and so on have a distinctive zone that we need to approach it uh, likewise. So these are six zones uh, in terms of how each area has to be theorized, engaged with, researched. Uh, you might find some similar themes in one zone or the others. For example, securitization is used, but the feature in France is distinctly different than the United States. So when we compare it, we need to make account of those, inshallah. Just that for nothing. Thank you, Hatem. Um, and uh, as a uh, historian of the Third Crusade, I have to say, even Salahuddin had a little help. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, let us invite uh, Jasmine Zin to um, Make her remarks. Um, I wanted to begin by well acknowledging uh, Hatham's leadership in the field of Islamophobia studies and uh, the work that you know everyone has done to bring us um, together uh, for this occasion and to thank everyone for being here, uh, coming from far and wide to share your knowledge, your research, your expertise, and your passion for this field, which we are all implicated in in, in various ways. Um, and I, I do want to also uh, thank, although they've already been thanked, but the volunteers that um, have been working to make this very seamlessly uh, running smoothly and organized. And a special shout out to Abu Bakr and Ilham, who are in the back, who I have spoken with, and I appreciate all the work that everyone is doing behind the scenes. Um, and I, I want to also comment about the wonderful sessions that I've had the privilege to listen to and learn from uh, throughout the conference. Been really thought-provoking um, discussions that have helped us to better understand the global landscape of Islamophobia through the transnational dimensions of Islamophobic ethno-nationalisms, including Islamophobia and Muslim-majority contexts, from genocide to structural state formations of Islamophobic racial governmentalities, to focusing on the affective registers of Islamophobia and its impact on Muslims through an intersectional approach. And through Adnan's work, we were also able to understand better the historical underpinnings and discursive formations uh, of Islamophobia which we also were able to examine in terms of the wider discourses, um, disinformation campaigns, media, conspiracy theories, and propaganda through the work of many of the scholars here today. And we were also able to hear a little bit about um, the stakes of being a scholar, a Muslim scholar, working in Islamophobia studies, 
uh, or doing solidarity work with Palestine. And, uh, you know, uh, Professor Rizwan's uh, presentation yesterday was very powerful uh, examination of those stakes and the impact. And I think that's very, very important as we talk about the securitization of research on Islamophobia. You know, I've often be, uh, started to characterize Islamophobia, challenging Islamophobia, as uh, if you're playing a game of whack-a-mole. And for those who don't know, if you've gone to like a carnival setting, there's that game where there's all these holes and these moles keep popping up and you have to keep hitting them and they keep coming, right? Mm -hmm. So I always characterize Islamophobia as if we're playing that game of whack-a-mole. And in my own work, I've been playing the whack-a-mole on various fronts. Uh, starting with, you know, looking at Islamophobia in education, where it becomes, you know, it can become institutionally reproduced. Um, it also has an effect on Muslim uh, students and youth, and that's been some of my interests, as well as looking more recently at this 9-11 generation, this generation that was socialized into a world that they inherited that, um, you know, was referenced by the global war on terror, domestic security policies, and so on. And how, you know, how they how they responding to what W.E.B. Du Bois posed as a question, what does it feel like to be a problem? And so what does that mean for this generation who I uh, characterize as being under siege? So that was sort of some of the issues I was working on, as well as gendered Islamophobia and the representations of Muslim women. We've heard that um, here today in different ways. Um, I've also looked at the representation of Muslim women in literature, cinema, and film, and as Hatham said, that is one of the uh, major domains that we need to interrogate. We need to also intervene in, right, and, and support the resistance through the arts of Muslim artists who are actually starting to challenge and doing some amazing work. Um, you know, and also how with the plethora of uh, books and, you know, um, films and all sorts of things that are out there, how do we begin to do anti-colonial readings of these texts? Uh, one of my uh, uh, works looked at um, how we look how, at Muslim women and how they're characterized in cinema, literature, popular culture, and what does it mean to do uh, an anti-colonial pedagogy in terms of how we decolonize those texts or how we read them from that lens. So we need to think about that as many of us are educators as well and, you know, how we bring that decolonial praxis into the work that we're doing. And also now we have to consider this landscape of um, Islamophobia's ecosystem and how it operates in different global contexts. And a lot of you have helped us look at that in a variety of ways. My own work has been in Canada more recently trying to look at the uh, formations of the Islamophobia industry in Canada. And, you know, that's what's distinct about Islamophobia, like sort of distinguishing it from other kinds of racisms and systems of oppression is that there's this industry behind its production that works 24-7, is highly monetized, is organized, they orchestrate controver controversies. Their lifeblood is the conspiracy theories and um, scare stories and disinformation campaigns. And it, it's a widely transnational integrated network um, that is monetized. And Islamophobia is profitable for a lot of people. And this is why, um, you know, it is an industry. It's a network, but it's also an industry. And so I've been more recently looking at that. And yet not wanting to lose sight, and some of you have talked about this, of liberal Islamophobia. And to me, that's more insidious and does a lot more in terms of normalizing Islamophobia than, you know, what the far right 
echo chamber or the other sectors of the Islamophobia industry might be doing. That has allowed it, you know, to become far more uh, mainstream and normalized. And I, I do look at that in my work in the context of Canada, which is, you know, the multicultural bastion. And yet it is the paradox of multiculturalism where liberal Islamophobia resides. Because on the one hand, we have this celebratory culture of, you know, sari, samosas, steel bands. We have all these multicultural festivals. We have an Islamic History Month. And at the same time, we have numerous policies that are targeting Muslims, uh, you know, like Bill 21 in Quebec, which bans um, religious symbols and religious attire in the public sphere, uh, security policies like security certificates and, you know, passenger protect or no-fly list, anti-terror act and so on. So there's, like in most nations, um, a series of policies that are targeting Muslims. Uh, at the same time, the state is, you know, celebrating uh, Muslims. And so that it's that paradox where, you know, I talk about it as Islamophilia meets Islamophobia, that this sort of liberal Islamophobia gets produced. And I think that is, you know, um, something that is quite uh, almost invisible at times, but we need to make that um, visible. And I think a lot of the papers, uh, you know, brought us to that understanding as well, that we need to uncover the variety of ways that Islamophobia operates. Sometimes they're large and in terms of genocides and in terms of, you know, uh, major issues that make the news. Um, but there's a lot of other subtle ways that Islamophobia is operating. And we see it now manifesting in gaming, as people have talked about, and in other ways. It's continually, you know, reproduced. So the game of whack-a-mole, you know, continues. And I also, you know, appreciated that uh, some of the papers started to think about the politics of resistance and what that means. You know, it's a very dystopic present when we look at Islamophobia, but we need to imagine an alternative future and what that um, looks like. And so I hope that our work together in ISRA will allow us to move from that dystopic present to an alternative future that is built on a, a framework of, of uh, justice and compassion and um, equity. And so I look forward to uh, working with everybody um, as part of ISRA to, uh, to do some of that work in the capacity and the way that we have as scholars, as activists, um, as public intellectuals. Thank you. Thanks so much for those uh, remarks and the view of the themes of the conference and connecting to what we'd like to see, the work that we, and hopefully we'll have a chance to talk a little bit about that, but before we get to our discussion, I'd like to uh, ask Salman to add his remarks. Yeah. So, everyone, and um, I just want to reiterate everything that um, Jasmine and Hatem said about the organization, the hospitality um, of the event, and the hospitality of Ibn uh, Khaldun University for actually being the first um, Islamophobia conference with ISRA and the first one outside Berkeley um, as a distinct kind of launching of that. And I think it's quite important that we launch this in Istanbul um, for many reasons, and some of them have been already talked about, but one of them is also, um, in many ways, um, while some of the conditions which have made Islamophobia possible began 100 years ago in this city. And that's something that we need to always take into account. So in a way, having this conference this year to talk about this allows us to reflect upon Islamophobia as something which is connected. 
Um, in the few minutes I've got, I just want to ask a question, and I'm not expecting an answer now, but I'm hoping that this may come up in the conversation later on, is really what's the point of having a conference? I know this is a really cruel thing to ask you after three days and you're quite <laughs> exhausted. <laughs> and you may feel right now, I wish you'd asked this earlier. But clearly, there is obviously the kind of social element of there, which, is, which shouldn't be under, undermined. But it's also a question about we should think about what do we do when we have these conferences? What do we want to come out of them, apart from just companionship and fun, etc.? Um, so this is not a question that I'm going to answer, but I just thought it'd be good for me to ask you what you think a good conference should be for future planning. The three points that I want to make, and I'll make them very, very quickly, is really, firstly, um, sort of the themes that I wanted to pick out from all the kind of very rich papers, presentations, questions, and interventions are really to do with two things. Firstly, what is the relationship between knowledge formation and politics and cultural transformation? I think that's a question that animates all of us in different ways, and trying to find out what that relationship might be is something that's really, really important, not only for the fight against Islamophobia, but also to understand our place in the world, to understand how Islamophobia works. The second thing that I wanted to talk about, which is a bit more specific, is really about the way in which Islamophobia has imposes a particular way of understanding the world. And one of the things that I think it does is allow, first, make it difficult for us to see across um, our local situations. It becomes very, either you start thinking very, very specifically locally what happens, or you think in terms of nationality. And here I think it's important to make the difference between comparativism and relationality. Um, the analysis of comparativism just takes the unit of analysis to be already constituted. So most, uh, very simply, if you often have things, they will say something like, in uh, French society, in Turkish society, in Iranian society, what they actually simply mean is they're not talking about societies anymore, they're talking about the nation state. So the phenomenons which are contained in that state, not necessarily phenomenons that need to be contained in that state, especially once you start asking questions about how the state boundaries become um, established. And we had a number of interventions on that. Um, so I think it's really, really important to think about the moving away from comparativism to relationality to see how that circulates across uh, many, many different places. The final point that I want to make um, really is to do with the idea of what is invested in the term Islamophobia. And obviously you see that sometimes people talk about anti-Muslim racism, sometimes they talk about um, anti-Muslim bigotry, prejudice, etc. And there are people who talk about Islamophobia. And I think there are two answers I would say to you that we need to think about. One is how are those two different, uh, the concept of Islamophobia deployed? And what does it actually do that other kinds of conceptualizations don't do? And I think that's really, really important. And secondly, is not to fetishize that kind of debate, that it becomes simply about, is this Islamophobia? Should we not call it something else? The, the, the point that I want to make is that Islamophobia is not a magic spell. It's not if you say Islamophobia and all the Islamophobes will disappear. If it was that, life would be easy. It is a concept to think with, and it allows you to think certain things where other categories may allow you to think other things. And then you have to make choices about what is it that you want to think and how does one concept help and how does it hinder. So that gets us into the real issue is that 
part of ISRA must be to deepen the idea of Islamophobia studies uh, as a legitimate field of study which has to have certain kinds of um, understandings around what constitutes good academic work. Um, I've got 10 seconds left according to my calculation um, and in that 10 seconds I will say I look forward to the conversation. <laughs> As do we all, and I think that really sets us up nicely for the three topics and some reflections from our panelists. So I noticed in all of your reflections that you mentioned and identified um, that many of the panels and presentations had also identified some of the challenges, whether they're methodological, epistemic, uh, professional, um, that are relevant um, for the field of Islamophobia studies. So I'm wondering if you had any reflections, building on what you've already just mentioned, about um, these challenges and perhaps also ways that we will need to collectively overcome them. Maybe I could, I, I think we have a profound challenge in the following that it, it it seems everyone who thinks that they could talk about Islamophobia can talk and think that they are a, an authority on the field without actually doing the work in the field. Like you don't expect someone to walk in, let's say, any type of field and just because they happen to be Muslim or maybe a friend of a Muslim or they, or they went to a Muslim restaurant that all of a sudden they can actually express their understanding of Islamophobia. So one is that we need to take the field of Islamophobia studies as a serious field that requires the methodological approach, that requires systematic research, require you know, peer review for us to challenge and think of the issues that we are dealing with in a uh, highest level that is possible. I think this is the field requires this seriousness from ourselves. Uh, I see that we are facing, you know, people say, is Islamophobia a problem? It's like, really, you have not drank coffee? We are facing genocide. We're facing two and a half million Muslims in concentration camp, the Uyghur. We're dealing with a situation in Kashmir, 800 to 900,000 Indian troops in Kashmir, the most militarized zone anywhere in the world. Uh, our uh, brothers and sisters in uh, uh, India, five million in Assam, completely been removed from citizenship overnight. Uh, lynching, daily lynching, the love jihad, the beef-eating lynchings that take place. Uh, so it requires for us to be serious, which gets me into the second part. For me, ISRA is a disciplined academic production uh, uh, community to deal with those issues that requires this. Uh, for people who know, I'm a 24-7 you know, activist as well as a committed academic. But I do have my hat in here to actually insist on an academic field that needs to be uh, engaged in the academic field. Uh, you know, uh, Palestine, you know, I, I chair American Muslims for Palestine. 24-7, I founded the SJP, Students for Justice in Palestine. I chair the Muslim Legal Fund for America. Every terrorism case that is 
uh, in the United States is we represent it. It's like we're the legal arm of last resort. But that is one word that is completely separate of what did we need to do, which is to fill the pipeline of academic research on the subject of Islamophobia in order for us to answer uh, this aspect. And third is how to actually make possible for people to stay in their own lane if they're not contradicting or working against whatever you are doing you need to actually find a way not to uh, engage in creating battles that are not needed right so often people think that their, their only way is the only way and pick on fights with people that we uh, have possibly are doing similar work but maybe having a different type of approach to it. We have very limited resources, let's be very clear, very limited resources, uh, no institutional uh, support across the world. Uh, most OIC or Muslim majority states, they don't have the resources behind Islamophobia as, as if, if anything, in some cases, uh, some Muslim majority state funding is actually going toward the Islamophobia industry, right, uh, where uh, Daniel Pipes have a red carpet in some Muslim majority states and comes in to train Muslims of how to actually develop their own self-hate. So there is no need for creating secondary battles just because you see the sun in different way than someone else uh, in relations to the cluster of works that you know. These, these are what you call principled, disciplined ways uh, Right, that we need to undertake. Uh, you know, I come from a tradition. If you can't help the oppressed, the word, the best thing you could do is not aid the oppressor. And aiding the oppressor is by creating a battle with those oppressed because you think that your method is better. We could sit down and have a coffee and discuss what, what's your method and so on. But understand, at the end of the day, the arrays of forces that are arrayed against us are much larger than our what you call limited squabbles in how we see things. Okay, um, I think I'll respond to this in a little more of a granular way in terms of looking at a couple of things, the sort of epistemic challenges and methodological, um, and I have thought about some of the political and professional, but I don't want to take up too much space, but I will. I think uh, probably be partially responding to someone's questions about what Islamophobia is and what it does and what it um, uh, what it denotes and so on. Um, to say that uh, what I've been noticing is that there is already some sort of discursive division that is starting to uh, take shape within the broader field of this study where some people are focusing more on leveraging the idea of anti-Muslim racism to the exclusion of Islamophobia, and um, you know, and I think that that is is troubling in terms of uh, you know what it leaves out of the equation because it essentially begins to um, really uh, create you know how we construct something then implicates how we uh, intervene in it. So if Islamophobia simply becomes an issue of racism, then we are leaving the Islam out of Islamophobia. And, you know, I think uh, we need to understand it in a more complex way and in a way that is relational. And so, you know, for me, I see Islamophobia as a sort of broader framework within which 
anti-Muslim racism becomes a manifestation as, in terms of how it's enacted against Muslim populations in specific ways. Um, and I think the bridge to those concepts is um, the racialization of religion uh, and how that um, operates you know, through cultural forms of racism. But uh, what I'm seeing is not a nuanced understanding of how we might think through these concepts and how they are related and how we might distinguish them, but rather um, the kind of divisiveness that um, Hatham is gesturing to. And I think that, you know, as scholars, we can have uh, disagreements and we can have, uh, we're all free to leverage um, the kinds of language we want. But I am starting to see some of that in terms of a way of excluding, uh, you know, Islam from the equation. And I, 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 for me, those are related. You cannot really talk about the vilification of Muslims without, you know, talking about the demonization of Islam. These are, are connected. Like, what is significant about Muslims except for the fact that we are adherents to Islam? We are, you know, a fifth of the world's population and highly diverse. So to create, you know, particular kinds of divisions or start to even look at oppression Olympics types of approaches uh, impedes the kinds of solidarities that we need, um, you know, to work collabor uh, collaboratively and collectively, uh, mobilizing all sectors develop of our communities and uh, globally and creating strategic alliances uh, to work also with communities outside our own. Um, so I just wanted to flag that as kind of an epistemic um, issue that I've been uh, starting to see happening. I don't know if others have been noticing that as well. Um, on the methodological side, I also wanted to comment because I believe that this has had a significant challenge uh, for me in the work that I do uh, as an ethnographer. You know, since 9-11 in particular, um, I've been very aware of the security, not just the securitization of Muslims as a population, but the securitization of our research. And of course, others have spoken to that um, as well. But doing ethnographic field work um, while I was working on this um, study of the 9-11 generation, it was very different than the work I did prior in terms of gaining, you know, um, access and trust. I'm part of the Muslim community, so I had a certain built-in. People knew me; they would speak to me. But it was also the question of what's going to happen to that information. And in a securitized climate, I was very unsure. Uh, you know, when I started my research, there were. Um, uh, Muslim youth who had been arrested, um, the Toronto 18, they were called 18 Muslim youth, um, on uh, various terror charges. And I was interviewing youth, so I was concerned that, you know, would the security agencies at some point knock on my door and say, well, you know, we heard you've interviewed this person, they're a person of interest, and could somehow have access or claim access to my um, data. And I don't know if that was possible, but it was certainly something that we had to consider. And so doing that field work changed in the process. Um, you know, we, I didn't keep, uh, you always use pseudonyms when you do qualitative research or ethnography, but I never put anybody's real name in a computer. Everything was on paper. It was divided between various research assistants. You know, it was like they knock on the door, we can eat the paper, burn it or something, right? Um, you know, we had to also consider the extent to which we could provide uh, anonymity, the promise of anonymity and confidentiality to our participants under the regulation of a security state that could potentially um, gain access to that information. It really shifted uh, the terrain when it came to ethics and ethical standards. Um, so those were some of the marked changes in terms of how 
the securitization um, affected the work that I did as a as an ethnographer. Um, you know, and I see it as broadly part of a kind of securitized habitus that has been constructed in this moment, sort of drawing on Bourdieu, but these sort of uh, dispositions and, um, you know, uh, kind of frames and, and cultural ways in which we have been socialized and learned to enact and engage. Um, as part of the broader security industrial complex, there's a habitus that's been created and a way in which we um, accommodate to that and maneuver within it. Uh, and that's definitely shaped, um, you know, the kind of um, uh, ways in which I had to cons uh, do my field work. Uh, not to mention the surveillance on Muslim academics and the work we do. And one of the things that's very insidious um, that I didn't realize was possible was that, and you know, a lot of us work for public institutions, but pretty much anyone can uh, access your emails. They can request to see your emails and you have to disclose them through freedom of information. So um, often that's used as a tactic of harassment um, by various players who are, have their, uh, you know, who are coming after us and really just wanting to be a nuisance or wanting to find information in those emails to undermine us. So it's very disconcerting when you are approached by the university lawyer to say that you need to disclose your, um, all of your, your messages, even those that have been deleted have to be accessed and turned over. And there's certain provisions, at least in Canada, um, you know, where if it's research, you can qualify it. That doesn't have to go out. But other kinds of communications, and if you're an administrator, it's even worse. You have to pretty much disclose everything. So the rule of thumb is if you don't want your emails to be either read in court or in a media publication, then don't put it in the institutional email. And so that was a hard lesson that I learned. Uh, you know, and just another form of surveillance, harassment, again, through not the sort of obvious ways, and there's been terrible ways that, you know, Muslim scholars, many on ISRA's board have been targeted. Uh, Hatham, Rabab, um, uh, Farid, uh, myself too. But this is some of the more subtle ways in which they go, come after you uh, to undermine you, to actually get your private information and use it against you. It's a, you know, like doxing and so on. This is another strategy that's very organized, and anyone can request it, and you have to comply, and you'll never know who they are. So uh, that's also, I think, you know, part of the methodological, or you know, part of the surveillance and the securitization of research that I wanted to um, to flag and. You know, uh, then I'll just, in closing, echo what um, Salma, uh, sorry, Hatham was saying about the lack of institutional support for Islamophobia studies. I know in, in my context in Canada, we don't have positions on Islamophobia studies. We don't have research centers. We don't have chairs. We don't have, you know, anything. Even though we've had two major terror attacks against Muslims, they have now a special envoy that they have brought in, you know, as a sort of cosmetic kind of position, political position um, on Islamophobia. That's after you, you know, uh, several Muslims are murdered, then they give you the special envoy. But, you know, we don't have a structure through which we can um, build the infrastructure for Islamophobia studies because it's not recognized. So that's another challenge, uh, you know, that I think we need to... Um, uh, find ways to work with and, and, you know, get the funding, get the resources to do the work that we need to do. And it means we have to sing for our supper a lot of the times, you know. And uh, it's unfortunate because when you start to talk about Islamophobia globally, as Hatham has articulated, you wonder how can there ever be a question? Why aren't the resources being allocated, right? So we need to ask those questions.
Yeah, I just wanted to point out also even curriculum. Yeah. You know, I mean, can you get a course uh, mm -hmm. approved that is principally about Islamophobia? Maybe, I mean, all of you, I'm sure, teach, who do teach, incorporate Islamophobia studies and the issue and the topic in your courses, but could you get a curriculum committee to approve a course that was specifically designed to study Islamophobia principally? That's a kind of question that also institutionally we're working with barriers and challenges, but still not. Um, I think the point's already been made about the um, gap between the enormity of the task and the poverty of the resources that we have, so I'm not going to make that case. But there's another element which is not just to do with, I suppose, um, material resources. And the only way I can think about it and try and explain it is this. With colonialism, you could have be anti-colonial. So there was anti-colonialism because there was colonialism. But I haven't heard people talk about anti-post-colonialism. And the reason is this, that when it was colonialism, the dividing line between what was colonized and what was not colonized was very, very clear. And therefore, a lot of the task was simply to show that how clear it is, the divide between what needs to be done. You can spot an Islamophobe from someone who's not an Islamophobe. In a kind of post-colonial context, it's almost difficult to draw that line. And because you can't draw that line, it's difficult to raise consciousness and mobilize people around it, not just Muslims, but also non-Muslims. So the biggest task remains is to try and construct communities of practice and communities of endeavor which challenge the way um, Islamophobia is without getting caught up in many distractions, including, well, Islamophobia really exists, etc., etc., etc. So really the biggest challenge is how you try can carry out conscious raising around Islamophobia when there are no clear lines in there. Um, how many of you would have heard the phrase, I'm, so I'm Muslim, how can I be an Islamophobe? Or if it's a, you know, like Islamophobia is a function of something other. So I think that's the biggest challenge, that the inability or the difficulty in being able to differentiate and delineate a particular condition that we're in, in which Islamophobia exists. And you will always get this thing. Yes, Islamophobia is bad, but you can understand why it's justified. Or, and that's not one step away from those who would argue Islamophobia is a rational response to Muslim behavior. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's the problem. And then we get into this discourse of being apologetic. Yes, yes, Muslims are bad, but, don't, you know, but not all Muslims are bad. And, and you don't have a right to be bad, and you have to be good citizens, and all of this, and you have to be moderate, etc. So I said that's the biggest problem, because we can't think of an anti-post-colonial front in the way we could think of an anti-colonial front to post-colonialism. Well, we're um, getting short-ish on time, so I want to move the conversation forward to the topic of what are the stakes involved in scholar-activist work on Islamophobia and in Islamophobia studies. And I think this has already come up in some oblique ways, but we might uh, address it more directly. And Salman, you uh, raised the issue of uh, 
thinking about uh, what's the relationship between knowledge formation and cultural and political transformation, which I think is really, in some ways, at the heart of what it would mean to be a scholar activist. Uh, so I wonder if you wanted to elaborate, perhaps, a little bit on that. Um, actually, I don't really want to elaborate on that, because in a way, I think this is such a central issue for all of us. Um, it's very, very easy to um, do two things. Either you delude yourself in thinking that I've written, a, you know, written an academic paper, the why hasn't the world been transformed, and you know, it's going to demand for that. At the same time, there's also this idea that um, you know, uh, nothing can be done um, around uh, academic, you know, acad academia is utopian, etc. It's not the real world. I guess what I would say to you is this. Perhaps the, what that really means, the knowledge formation and cultural and political transformation, is perhaps where the battle of ideas is fought. And if you're not joining the battle of ideas, then you are being actually going to still suffer the effects of the battle of ideas. And that's where perhaps um, there is space for both scholars and activists, as long as they keep that conversation going between themselves. And you don't have this thing about, well, scholars don't know anything about the real world, or activists are only interested in very short-termism. We have to become educated in the relationship between theory and praxis as not being two distinct spheres, but actually they're unified together to make any kind of difference. I, I think that the question on activism and uh, scholarship, it only comes if one doesn't can possibly step back and say, you could actually do research without having to be active whatsoever. I would be more, you know, for us who are at the university, we have so many colleagues, right, that sit in there and they're just doing research on whatever issues, you know, watching birds and just registering how many birds fly and what colors are the birds, and there's Palestinian birds, and there is Pakistani birds, the Pakistani birds eat uh, what you call spicy food and Palestinian <laughs> birds eat kanafa. Right? Literally, you could do that without any problem. I come, at least I'm speaking for myself because that's uh, where my vantage point, <laughs> I say that scholarship has to have an impact and to be mobilized to transforming uh, the conditions that you are seeing to be wrong. Coming again from a tradition, so I know that I am able to change it by writing, by organizing, by getting people together to try to find the problem in there. I do have to say that there is, they have developed a propensity among sectors of Muslims, which I would say that uh, action is sufficient to dealing with the problem, which means that we don't really need to study, we don't need to do research, this is like it's a problem, you're coming from what you call the uh, ivory tower and so on. And again, there are many people in the ivory tower, even at Berkeley, if you want to talk about how many people, most of the campus is in the ivory tower. Uh, how many people that can, you could count on is about 120, 130 people out of 3,000 faculty. So you have to assess on campus or the university and scholarship where that scholarship that actually could be mobilized as a knowledge production in order to actually resist. Because the first fundamental aspect is you need to analyze what, what are the weaknesses that you have and what are the strengths strength that your opponent have 
in order for you to actually understand the problem correctly in order to remedy the circumstances that you are facing. So for me, that, that tension often is fictitious tension, but also the tension of, I'm sorry, sometimes out of laziness, right, that we don't want to do the work that is needed. You need, you know, need to read, you need to do the work, you need to assess. If knowledge production was unimportant, why is it that Islamophobia industry invests 157 million from our last report in actually creating the research to demonize you? And why they have so many think tanks, again, it's tanks with much, not much thinking occurring, but again, so many think tanks that are producing the literature that is so much used, and then you get into hearings, and that is the literature that gets to be at the hearing. Not our research, not the counter-research. So that's for me, is the tension ha that has to be understood of what type of project are you committed in. Again, many colleagues are committed to just studying birds and going home. There is nothing wrong. It's five miles from where your office is to the home, and in between you watch the birds. <laughs> Again, uh, for those who look at the universe, that's the, what you call the abject description of where we are at. And you have other associations that you could actually do work. You could go to a number of associations, and usually they have it in nice hotels, right? The university pays for you. Right? And the cafe is good also in some of those places. But does it create resistance? Does it get change? Does it create change? Does it actually empower? And that's the research that we need to be committed to as activist scholars. Uh, if I can add, I guess for me, um, my academic training was very much as a scholar activist. And, and that's because I was in a graduate program that was on race and anti-colonial studies. Not on post-colonial, but on anti-colonial studies. Because when we talk about anything that's post, I ask, you know, it is a funeral without a corpse, right? So we were very much, uh, I was in a program that was mostly racialized indigenous um, scholars. And we were very much um, encouraged and uh, mentored to be public intellectuals, to engage in public forms of scholarship. So it's the only thing I've known, um, despite the stakes that come with that. Um, I think I want to focus on one thing when it comes to public scholarship, and it's particularly in Islamophobia studies, and that is academic freedom and some of the um, challenges around that and some of the interventions that have come through scholar activist work. Uh, Islamophobia studies has become the litmus test for academic freedom. Um, and, you know, I think one of the big challenges, and I'm going to use this by way of as an example, um, that I've been working on and dealing with in Canada has been the uh, IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. Um, and that has been brought in in many nations and governments and institutions. And it very much has um, silenced any criticism of Israel as a racist endeavor or as a apartheid state or as a colonial state. Um, and that has had huge implications um, for, for scholarship. And so as we started to see in Canada, um, the IHRA bring, being brought in through the back door, through various lobbies and so on, um, in the academic sector, we really felt we needed to respond uh, as academics and as activists. And so working with um, four other colleagues, um, we developed a group that we called an ad hoc group that became the Academic Alliance Against Antisemitism, Racism, Colonialism, and Censorship, which we just narrowed to ARC or we just call ourselves the Fab Five. That's our nickname for each other. 
Um, and this was independent Jewish voices, a scholar from there, two Palestinian scholars, myself, and a colleague of mine in sociology who is not in any of those categories. Um, but we, what we did was um, try to mobilize the university sector to inoculate it against the deleterious effects of um, the IHRA on academic freedom. And we did it by stealth. In fact, we used the whack-a-mole model because we said, you know, we're going to be the mole. So we're going to work underground, be very surreptitious, and we worked through contacting our, our people we knew in faculty associations across the country and different universities and started having conversations. We wrote op-eds, we wrote a handbook about IRA and academic freedom and what it meant in terms of, you know, our research, our ability to write and to critique. You know, we could critique the Canadian state as being a racist endeavor and a white settler colony, but we could not say this about Israel. And the targeting of faculty um, and, and students and activists who were doing this work, we've heard some of those stories, right, uh, you know, was creating a chilly climate on campuses, self-censorship, all sorts of things. So we started a campaign, uh, very again underground, because we didn't, we knew that the other side, if they found out, would be, you know, blocking us everywhere. Um, but in the end, we created a motion that we wanted faculty unions and associations to pass to say that um, they will not accept the IHRA if it, uh, definition of anti-Semitism because of the way in which it silences critique of Israel as a racist endeavor and as a colonial, um, uh, you know, colonial entity. Um, and we used the language of equity, diversity, inclusion, right, which universities are using to do that, to say, look, if you're talking about decolonization, and in Canada that's a big buzzword now, um, you need to include this. So in the end, we got 40 um, academic associations across the country and unions to pass our motion, and we got the largest union in Canada that represents 99 universities to pass the motion um, unanimously. And, you know, we didn't have as much pushback or blowback as we thought. Um, but it's just an example of, um, you know, people coming together, scholar activists under a common purpose, and finding a way to work together to um, mobilize people uh, within the university sector and to demonstrate, you know, um, what IRA meant. And because a lot of people didn't, weren't thinking about it, a lot of the people in engineering faculties, economic faculties, other were not thinking about this, right? And so we needed to get that conversation going. We needed to get the faculty associations talking about it. And we needed to put together a solid motion that was, um, you know, not going to be challenged. And so that is, I have to say, one of the things I'm the most proud of being involved with in my academic career. Um, and it was an opportunity to, uh, for all of us as scholar activists to do something that um, actually did have an impact. And we don't always, I mean, sometimes we try and we work and you don't always have the tangible outcome. And in this case, we did. So I offer that as a, an experience that, you know, um, maybe others can uh, do in their own contexts and, to, you know, to think about the ways that we can collectively mobilize our university sectors, um, you know, t for collective action. This is an episode of In Conversation, brought to you by Network Reorient, the podcast wing of the Critical Muslim Studies Project. Your host has been Hizamir, and the episode has been sound engineered by Zubair Vakil. 
Thank you for tuning in. Have a listen to our other episodes and please leave a like and a rating.